Hello, everyone. This is Ben Kelly with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy podcast. Uh, we are continuing our read through the book, The Word of God in the Mind of Man by the Christian philosopher Ronald Nash. We're in chapter three, The Assault on Propositional Revelation. So, so far in the book, we've really established how certain philosophers and theologians have really created a gap between the human ability to know or cognitively know uh, propositional revelation and has really established this idea that uh, God's revelation is really more a revealing of himself and not any kind of propositional fact about himself. And then also, you know, revelation is really just found in experience. Uh, this, this chapter is a bit shorter and it is going to, you're definitely going to hear some of the same names that we've covered earlier especially when we talked about Henry's paper on justification by ignorance. And so these are some of the same uh, names. It's always the same names when you come to the 20th century. You're going to study, anytime you're studying theology in the 20th century, you're going to study Art, Bruner, Boltman, uh, to some extent Tillich, if, if you can understand Tillich, and to some extent Niebuhr or I think that's how you say it, Niebauer, Niebuhr. I, I really don't know. I probably should know because, you know, I am somewhat of a theologian, but I don't know how to pronounce it. So, but those are the names that you come up against over and over again. And uh, they are the ones who will be mentioned today. So we're in chapter three, the assault on propositional revelation. It's not a long chapter and I don't have as many notes. So hopefully we will only be here for about half the time that we normally are. So, Nash continues, I have suggested that the theological skepticism that pervades contemporary Christian thought is a convergence of theories about the nature of human knowledge, the nature of God, and the nature of human language. Our brief study of Hume, Kant, Schleiermacher, and Ritual helps us to see general direction taken by first two of those streams of thought, Although Hume started the ball rolling, the two dominant forms of theological skepticism in the 20th century, Schleiermacher and Ritual, largely followed the lead of Kant. As Protestant liberalism evolved in the first quarter of the 20th century, its God increasingly came to resemble the pantheistic deity of Schleiermacher. Naturally, any cognitive communication from such a God is impossible. The liberal God cannot speak because he was totally eminent in nature. He lacked personality. Now what becomes interesting in the history of theology, especially modern theology, is that there will eventually be a counterattack against liberal theology and liberal theology's insistence in divine eminence. This would come from former liberals in the early 20th century who would come to be identified as the neo-orthodox theologians like Karl Barth or um, Emil Bruner. Bart would deny the eminence of Schleiermacher attributed to God and would state that God is wholly other. Now, if you don't know what I mean when I say eminent, think about it in a way for how God is close to his creation. The, the theological categories of eminence and transcendence exist on kind of a continuum or maybe a spectrum of sorts where on one end, God is completely eminent to the point where he really can't be distinguished from his creation. And 
this is a view like what is seen in pantheism, and that's what Nash is accusing Schleiermacher of here. God is so imminent, he is literally his creation. Now, on the other side of the continuum is fideism or agnosticism, which both are extremely similar when comparing them in theological terms, especially how one comes to knowledge. Um, that's These positions state that God is so transcendent, transcendent, he is so wholly other that it is impossible to know anything about him. So fideists like Karl Barth get incredibly close to agnosticism because they really have no place for human knowledge in their systems of theology. Everything is boiled down to belief or faith, really. Now, however, in reacting to the liberal theology of Schleiermacher, Barth, and other neo-Orthodox theologians, they would make God so wholly other that revelation would be non-cognitive and non-propositional. And so the classic Orthodox doctrine of Christianity holds that God's eminence and transcendence, it, it holds those in, in a balance as God is eminent in the characteristics he shares with humans, but is also transcendent in the characteristics where humans are nothing like him. And what we see in modern theology is a sort of rejection of this balance where God is both eminent and transcendent. Instead, on one end, we get a God who is completely eminent and is only and it is only through feeling of complete dependence on him to where we get to know him. And, and on the other hand, we get a, a God who is so wholly other that we can he, he can only be known through the what we would call the Christ event. That's what uh, theologians like Bart would say, that God is only known through the person of Jesus Christ and um, not God's word or the Bible. And this was the view of Bart, that not even the Bible was God's word. The only way that we truly know God, and, and this is not a cognitive or propositional revelation, it's God revealing himself through event, and that is in Jesus Christ. Both theologies led to a non-propositional view of the revelation of God, even though they were diametrically opposed to one another. And that's, that's so uh, that's fascinating to me that you have two polar ends of theology. One is liberalism, the other is neo-orthodoxy, and neo-orthodoxy is obviously reacting to liberalism, and they try each end tries to uphold you know a, a very strong view of God one way or the other, and in the end they both end up doing the same thing when it comes to God's revelation. So you. If you are a reader of modern theology, you know, if you go from this podcast and you're saying to yourself, maybe you want to read Roger Olson's book on modern theology, you'll pick up on these things and how these different schools of theology are reacting to them or to each other. And obviously liberalism is, you know, it very much values the eminence of God almost to the point where he is mixed up with his creation. He's almost in, you know, you can't tell him apart from his creation to the transcendent God of neo-orthodoxy that is so wholly other, we can only know him through God revealing himself in Jesus Christ. So very different ideas compared to just orthodox Christianity. And that's what, that's what Nash is trying to 
you know, pull out here. So continuing with Nash, the theological skepticism of the past 60 years, however, proceeds on the basis of a theory about the nature of God different from Schleiermacher's when neo-Orthodox theology first burst on the scene in the form of Karl Barth's commentary to the, Epistles of the, to the Epistle of the Romans, which is a, an important commentary. This is not, um, I, I don't want to trash Bart. He is important to theology. So if you ever get a chance to read some of that, it is important. One of its more prominent concerns was the repudiation of Schleiermacher's eminence theology. Bart went so far as to call the theology of Schleiermacher's disciples a betrayal of Christ, and that's in quotes, betrayal of Christ. He rejected eminence theology of liberalism, which he himself had formerly held, in favor of a new emphasis on divine transcendence that he had learned from Kierkegaard, Luther, and the scriptures. Unfortunately, this total transcendent or holy other God was no more able to communicate knowledge or truth than the eminent deity of Schleiermacher. The early Bart had denied that revelation is a communication of truth and viewed it only as a personal divine human encounter. And although much later Bart qualified this position considerably, it is still possible to trace a degree of ambivalence about the subject in his later writings. So I, I just want to say one point here real quick. As far as I don't, I don't know why Nash included Luther in the scriptures. And I, I mean, I know that Bart, you know, references Luther in the scriptures, but I don't think Luther or the scriptures teach this holy other God as Bart laid out. Now, I think Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, does in, in some sense. And Bart takes a lot of cues from Kierkegaard. But I would be hesitant to say Luther and the scriptures do that as well. I think you can definitely get a sense that there is a transcendent God from Luther's theology and definitely from the scriptures, but I don't want I would not put them in the same class as Bart's theology. I think Bart's theology is even further out um, towards the transcendent um, sphere. So continuing with Nash. The god of pantheistic liberalism could not speak because he was totally eminent. Today, the reason most often given for God's inability to speak is his transcendence. This radical otherness of God means, among other things, that the human mind is incapable of comprehending the divine mind. Once this point is granted, it follows that the word of God can never be the communication of truth. Divine revelation can never contain a cognitive content that can be apprehended by the human mind. This network of ideas accounts for what is perhaps the central phalanx in the contemporary assault on the knowability of God. It can be summed up in the statement that no revelation is propositional. So God is completely or wholly other, um, according to a lot of these uh, neo-Orthodox theologians like Barth that kind of set the standard for how the doctrine of revelation would be approached in the 20th century. Um, because of that otherness of God, then the human mind is incapable of knowing God. Therefore, propositional revelation is not a thing. Revelation does not contain truth propositions. And, and this, of course, begs the question, as it does with any sort or form of skepticism, how does one come about the truth proposition that there are no truth propositions in Revelation? Is that truth proposition revealed? So, I mean, the more you attempt 
to hammer away at the basic laws of logic in this kind of stuff, the more they will come back and hammer you when you do that. How did Bart and the neo-Orthodox theologians know that God's revelation was both non-cognitive and non-propositional? You know, was there an event that revealed to them this this truth because their belief seems like it it is a truth proposition? And so I I just I don't understand how they can get to this point without claiming some kind of propositional revealed truth it it just seems so bizarre to me that they can and i mean and you know i heard a story one time of a seminarian coming to carl bart you know in in his later years and saying i found 20 contradictions in your theology and bart was like oh is that all well let me let me see your paper and maybe i can add 20 more you know he was he was not worried about logical contradictions, but that was kind of the whole theology of Bart is that God is made up of logical contradictions, which gets me into, brings back memories of talking with certain pastors who think God can do things that are logically contradictory, and that is definitely not the case. You know, they say things like, oh, he wouldn't do that, but he could if he wanted because he's God. And it's like, no, he doesn't do that. So it's like saying, can God sin? No, God cannot sin. That's not an attack upon his ability. Um, it is just characteristically impossible. It would be he cannot deny himself, therefore he cannot sin, because for him to sin would be to, to deny himself. And it's amazing to me that so many pastors can't get that from the scriptures. Like it's there. That that's not something that just philosophers just came up with. Like it that is there. So whatever, I don't want to get sidetracked on that. Let's keep reading. Uh, Let's see. Nash continues. Advocates of this view usually begin by drawing a radical distinction between two senses of revelation. Propositional revelation, the the revelation of truth, and personal revelation. Here we go. This is going to sound familiar for some of you. The distinction once granted becomes an exclusive disjunction, and proponents of the non-propositional view of revelation then simply assert the impossibility of any cognitive knowledge about God and insist that God reveals himself not through propositions but through personal presence or encounter. According to this position, man does not require knowledge about God, truth or propositional truth, as a precondition for a personal relationship with God. Revelation is exclusively an event which God reveals himself. It is never a disclosure of information about God or anything else. And that's when I talk about the Christ event. When I was, you know, I was saying like, you know, Bart believed that God reveals himself in the Christ event. This is what they're talking about. It's never a disclosure of information. It is God revealing himself. That's why the Bible for the neo-Orthodox and frankly, all these other theologians we're going to read about um, in this chapter, they don't believe scripture is really the revelation of God. The list of those who have held this non-cognitive view of revelation reads like a who's who of contemporary theology. One of the earliest proponents of the position in the English-speaking world was the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who declared there is no such thing as revealed truth. Now, can you imagine, pause right there for a minute, can you imagine that? Just, Just try to get, wrap that around your head. William Temple was the Archbishop of Canterbury. 
He was the highest ranking official in the Anglican Church at one time. All right? The Anglican Church. So we're talking about a major denomination, a major force in Christianity, especially, you know, at the time Temple was Archbishop. I, I would think that, I would say Anglicanism has probably fallen off quite a bit, as most mainline denominations have over the 20th century. But back in the early part of the 20th century, William Temple, one of the most prominent Protestants, prominent mainline Protestants and leaders in the world, makes the statement, there is no such thing as revealed truth. And that comes from his book, Nature, Man, and God, which may be an interesting book for us to read in the, in the future. I don't know. I'd have to look at that. But William Temple makes the statement that there is no such thing as revealed truth. That is that is one step further away, I would consider, than saying, you know, all revelation is non-cognitive. That's just crazy. Continuing. Let's see here. On the European continent, Emil Brunner, following the earlier early Karl Barth maintained that divine, and this is Brunner's quote, divine revelation is not a book or a doctrine. The revelation is God himself and his self-manifestation within history. Revelation is something that happens, the living history of God in his dealings with the human race, end quote. Central to Brunner's doctrine of revelation was the claim that revelation is exclusively an event. It is God's breaking into history, into time in the person of Jesus Christ. For Bruner, Revelation is not some doctrine about Jesus. It is Jesus himself. Now, what we have to distinguish um, with this kind of thinking is that I am not going to argue, and neither is Nash, and we'll see this later in the chapter, we're not saying that Revelation is not you know, some kind of self-manifestation within history. Obviously, Revelation is that, but, it, but it's, it's not this self-manifestation, this event, at the exclusion of propositional revelation. So this is, very, this is very important to understanding neo-Orthodox theology. They don't deny that revelation happens, but they state that revelation is not knowing truths about God, but knowing God himself. God does not reveal information about himself. He just reveals himself. And I think this is a wrong view because it limits the propositional content of revelation. And that's exactly why I'm reading you this book, because this is a problem. So continue with Bruner. For Bruner, revelation is more than a self-manifestation on the part of God. It is personal correspondence. It is an address and a response in faith as the individual is confronted by God in Christ. It is an I-thou relationship. Revelation is an encounter between two persons, God and the person of Christ and the individual. It is not once it is not a one-sided affair. Revelation is an event which is transcendent, unique, absolute, personal, and unrepeatable. That's important. Unrepeatable. That's why they that's one of the reasons why they think the Bible is not really the revelation of God. It's not the word of God. It only becomes the word of God in certain unique circumstances. Continuing. It cannot be proven since it has its own logic and rationality. In this revelatory encounter, there is no revealed truth. For Bruner, revelation is not the communication of intellectual knowledge of a doctrine about God, but God's own personal word. God can only be known as subject, never as object. The God of the Bible is the unconditioned subject. 
A subject in contradistinction to every kind of object is that which can be known absolutely only through self-communication. The word revelation, then, in Bruner's view, does not mean a supernaturally revealed doctrine. In the Bible, revelation means God's mighty acts as man's of man's salvation. So, what's going on here? So this this theology is where we get some of the ideas of salvation being a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, until the 20th century, theologians did not talk about salvation in this in this kind of manner. Okay, and this is this is very important because I mean I grew up in circles where people would say, "Oh, you have to have you have to have ask Jesus to be Lord and Savior. You have to have a personal relationship." With Jesus Christ. And I would say Jesus needs to be Lord and Savior, but I don't quite see where we have this personal relationship coming in. And, th- and it's snuck in the back door through theology like this, where they were talking about, you know, God is only known as subject. All right. He is never the object. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, it's it's high, it's kind of hard to understand when we talk about God as subject, but it really dials into the personal relationship. God as an object would mean that there is propositional knowledge to be gained about him. But when God is known as subject, it's more of a personal relationship. If you want to get more into that, um, you can read Bruner and Bart's book on natural theology which, heck, I might read that to you sometime. It's a very classic debate. But uh, Bruner gets into this I-thou, God is known as a re- revelatory counter, as a sub- encounter as subject and never as object. So uh, moving on to next page. Bruner found an interesting example of his position in the labels the RCA Victor Company once used on its phonograph records. Those labels depict a dog faithfully listening to an old gramophone. The message on the label read, quote, his master's voice. Bruner thought this was an excellent illustration of the Bible's role in Revelation. A Christian listening to the Bible cannot help but hear the scratches and distortions on the surface of the old record, but through the imperfections, he nonetheless hears his master's voice. Though the Bible itself is not the word of God, nevertheless, we can hear the word of God through the Bible. Just as window panes are not there to be looked at, but to enable us to look through them at, at the view beyond, so we are not commanded to believe the Bible, but through the window of the Bible to see God's light. No one can question the earnest piety behind Bruner's account of Revelation. It remains to be seen whether it is pious nonsense. So taking a little bit of dig at Bruner there, but for the neo-Orthodox theologian, the Bible is not the word of God. And I have talked about this before with Karl Barth and other podcasts, so you can go back in the history and look at that. But the Bible for Bruner was simply a lens to see the Word of God. And also Barth stated the Bible only becomes the Word of God while reading and, and encountering God through the Bible. Revelation, again, becomes an event. It is not propositional knowledge. Moving on, opposition to revelation as propositional truth was also shared by Rudolf Boltman. There's a name you should remember from our little um, reading from Carl Henry. Boltman rejected the position that revelation is the communication of knowledge or of doctrine. He would have nothing to do with any view that allowed one to speak of God 
in generally valid sentences that are true apart from a connection to the concrete existential situation of the speaker. So let me read that again because I kind of walked through it weird, but this is quoting Bart, or I'm sorry, this is quoting Boltman. It says, he would have nothing to do with any view that allowed one to speak of God in, quote, generally valid sentences that are true apart from a connection to the concrete existential situation of the speaker, end quote. The human agent of revelation, Boltman maintained, never appears as a communicator of teaching. Quote, he has imparted no information about God at all. He does not communicate anything but calls men to himself, end quote. Neither a set of propositions nor a set of dogmas Revelation for Bart is an act in which God addresses his word of salvation to human beings. God's personal disclosure must produce self-understanding in the one who hears and responds to the act of revelation. All right, and then here's a longer quote from Boltman. When the revelation is truly understood as God's revelation, it is no longer a communication of teachings nor of ethical or historical or philosophical truths. But God speaking directly to me, assigning me each time to the place that is allotted me before God, i.e., summoning me, summoning me in my humanity, which is null and void without God, and which is open to God only in the recognition of its nullity. Hence, there can be only one criterion for the truth of revelation, namely, this, that the word which claims to be the revelation must place each man before a decision, the decision as to how he wants to understand himself as one who wins his life and authenticity by his own resources, reason, and actions, or by the grace of God. End quote. Revelation then not only unveils God the speaker, it also removes the veil from the hearers as it helps us better understand that we are and what is our potential, or what we are and what is our potential. Okay, so what the snot is going on there. So for Boltman, revelation is more about an existential process. Revelation is God revealing to people their own authentic existence. Now, this makes sense because Boltman was a, against a lot of supernatural elements in Scripture, so the idea that God reveals anything of himself is not going to fit into Boltman's theology. Now, I'm pretty sure that is correct how to understand him, but I have to say, out of all the theologians Nash will talk about here, I know Boltman the least, and I think he's kind of hard to understand. Boltman was very much concerned with the existential crisis of the human being, that he, he wanted to understand Revelation through an existential lens, and that's where we get this weird theology where re revelation is God revealing to people their own authentic existence. Again, way different than, you know, revelation being truth propositions about God. Much different. And they only get more weird as time goes on. And now we're moving on to Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich also adhered to the non-cognitive view. For Tillich, there are no revealed doctrines, but there are revelatory events and situations which can be described in doctrinal terms. The Word of God contains neither revealed commandments nor revealed doctrines. And that's a quote from Tillich. So let me read that again, the, the quote from Tillich. 
There are no revealed doctrines, but there are revelatory events and situations which can be described in doctrinal terms. The Word of God contains neither revealed commandments nor revealed doctrines. Now again, here is another who's who of the 20th century theology with Paul Tillich stating that there are no revealed commands or doctrines, and this seems like there's no revealed propositional truth, okay? So this is just doing, and he's doing the same thing over and over again. So we move on. Um, he continues here. Avery Dulles, and Avery Dulles is a fairly prominent uh, Roman Catholic theologian, scholar. He, he wrote a pretty influential book on the different modes of revelation in the 20th century. Avery Dulles explains that for Tillage, revelation is a special and extraordinary type of knowledge. It is the apprehension of the mysterious. Ooh, that's going to really, you know, get us going there. It is the apprehension of the mysterious, of that which lies beyond the grasp of man's natural powers. Oh, who does that sound like? In Revelation, indeed, if you miss that, it sounds like Kant. So I, I need to learn to explain those things. In Revelation, indeed, God manifests himself. The human intellect is brought face to face with the transcendent God. Because God is transcendent, and this is a quote from, who is this a quote from? I think this is Dulles explaining Tillich. Yes, this is Dulles explaining Tillich. Because God is transcendent, quote, he cannot be reached by ordinary human knowledge. In order to acquire any genuine knowledge of God, therefore, it is necessary for the mind to overleap all finite categories and transcend the ordinary distinctions between subject and object. There's that distinction again, subject and object. That which is revealed is strict mystery. It cannot be apprehended by ordinary thought, and for the same reason, it cannot be expressed in ordinary language. Propositions about revelation are themselves revelatory. So, let's see here. Oh, I'm going to keep going. Tillage denigrates, and this, that's the end of the quote, Tillage denigrates propositions as a vehicle of revelation. Propositions, he wrote, have no revelatory power. If the word of God or the act of revelation is called the source of systematic theology, it must be emphasized that the word of God is not limited to the words of the book and that the act of revelation is not the inspiring of a book of revelations, even if the book is the document of the, of the final word of God, the fulfillment and the criterion of all revelations. It comes as no surprise then to find Tillage opposed to viewing the Bible as the Word of God. He wrote, quote, But if the Bible is called the Word of God, theological confusion is almost unavoidable. Probably nothing has contributed more to the misrepresentation of all biblical doctrine of the Word than the identification of the Word of God with the Bible. End quote. So uh, people often wonder why evangelicals make a big deal about the Bible being inerrant, um, you know, inspired, and infallible. And it's been suggested that these kinds of doctrines that have really come about in the latter half of the 20th century, that they're, they're nothing more than a 20th century fabrication meant to bolster, you know, evangelical views about the Bible. But this is completely false. Um, doctrines like inerrancy and how, you know, really more conservative theologians have really dove into inspiration. Uh, they can be traced throughout the history of the church, and it didn't become fundamentally important to Christianity until the 20th century when so many theologians were denying that the Bible was the, actually the Word of God, that these doctrines had to be explained in greater detail and greater force. And so that's, you know, I mean, 
you just read these guys and, and none of them believe the Bible is the word of God. And I know for many people who are listening, they're like, oh, I didn't grow up in a church like that. But you have to just, you have to understand these were the people who were forming theology in the 20th century. These were the people who everyone in the mainline Protestant denominations was going to listen to, to listen to at the universities, at the seminaries. These were the innovators. These were the, you know, the practitioners of theology, and they're all kind of crazy. They have no reverence for the scriptures being the word of God. And so that's just, you know, you, you wonder where some of these beliefs come from, but this is, this is exactly why, you know, you see in the 1970s such a strong reaction from evangelical Christianity about doctrines like inerrancy and inspiration. This is why. Let me continue. The role of theologians who shared the distrust of revealed knowledge goes on. Richard Niebuhr was typical of those American theologians who helped impart the non-cognitive view of revelation to theological students on this side of the Atlantic. According to Niebuhr, and I don't know if I'm saying that right, it's N-I-E-B-U-H-R. I, I think it's Niebuhr or Niebauer, I can't remember, honestly. Um, anyways, according to Niebuhr, the meaning of revelation, quote, cannot be expressed in the impersonal ways or of creeds or of other propositions, but only in responsive acts of personal character, end quote. Back across the Atlantic, John Bailey, again, John Bailey's another important theologian that we really haven't talked about so much yet, but he's got an interesting book um, about revelation. We might, we could read that because it's only like 150 pages. It's very easy to John Bailey left no doubt where he stood when he wrote God and quote, God does not give us information by communication. He gives us himself in communion. It is not information about God that is real, but God himself, end quote. The non-cognitive view of revelation became so dominant in non-evangelical circles that in 1966, John Hick announced confidently that quote, in more recent times, the notion of divinely revealed propositions has virtually disappeared from Protestant theology, being replaced by the idea that of revelation throughout history, end quote. And this is from uh, John Hick's famous book, uh, Faith and Knowledge. I've actually got a hardback copy uh, sitting here on my desk that I was reading through a couple weeks ago. Um, it's an old, it, it smells really good. It's one of the early, I think, it, yeah, it's second edition from Cornell University Press. Continuing, Hicks summarizes the official um, doctrine, and this is again another quote from Hicks. Revelation is not a divine promulgation of propositions, nor is faith a believing of such propositions. The theological propositions formulated on the basis of revelation have a secondary status. They do not constitute the content of God's self-revelation, but are human and therefore fallible. Verbalizations constructed to aid both the integration of our religious experience into our own minds and the communication of religious experience to others. Okay, did you catch that? Did you did you hear what Hicks said there? Theological propositions formulate um, formulated on the basis of revelation have a secondary status. They do not constitute the content of God's self-revelation, but are human and therefore fallible. Now, what does this sound like? Think real hard. Think back to last week 
What does this sound like? It sounds a lot like Immanuel Kant. The revelatory data comes to us from the real or noumenal world, and that revelatory data is integrated by the forms and the structures of the mind for the phenomenal world. Okay, remember those words? Therefore, what happens to us is that we cannot know any true proposition about God because he is part of the real world. Kant is so heavily tied to how 20th century theologians viewed revelation. And this is why revelation by religious experience seems so subjective because it is, it's meant to be subjective. When you have this idea of we can only know things through experience, well, we don't know any kind of propositional data. We don't know any kind of theological truth claims. We can't know those. Those all have a secondary status. They do not constitute the content of God's self-revelation, and they are fallible. Sounds just like Kant, who says we can't know anything about the real world, can't know anything about God, because when we take the data in, it's reformulated in our minds, put we you know we put structure to it and then we have ideas of knowledge from there so we never really know who god is they're just taking it one step further and they're saying we can't know any kind of truth proposition about god because he's actually part of you know this transcendent otherness to where he can only reveal himself to us through event or experience, and he never reveals truth propositions about himself. So keep that in mind. You know, people, you might have asked yourself, Ben, why are we reading about David Hume, Immanuel Kant? Well, it's because they've had a lasting influence on the direction of both Protestant and, to a lesser extent, Roman Catholic theology. Roman Catholic theology's Kant, they would follow the same. Um, they would follow the same course. It just happened much later, but it happened a lot faster, too, within them, um, especially once you get to Vatican II in the '60s. So and I can read some of that for you sometime too. Continuing, all of this would have come as surprising news to the reformers, to Aquinas and Anselm, to Augustine, to the fathers of the Church as well as to Paul and other human authors of the New Testament. I do not deny that the non-cognitive view of Revelation contains important moments of truth. I shall leave unanswered the question whether those moments of truth are cognitive or non-cognitive. Certainly, the personal dimension of Revelation is important. Moreover, the dynamic and present element of Revelation must be emphasized. Revelation is not a static thing that belongs exclusively to the past. God's revelation must become alive and dynamic in the present experience of the believer through the action of the Holy Spirit. The weakness of the non-cognitive approach to Revelation lies not so much in what its advocates affirmed as in what they ignored or denied. They ignore, Ignoring belief that they emphasized faith in the sense of belief in. But belief in has belief that as a necessary condition. So you got to understand what he's doing here. That last sentence when he uses the words belief that or belief in, they're italicized. So he's kind of, he's he's doing things that philosophers do. So let me read that sentence again. Ignoring belief that, they emphasized faith in the sense of belief in. But belief in has belief that as a necessary condition. So 
what is this difference between belief in and belief that? Well, if I understand him correctly, and I'm I'm totally not sure if I do, but I I think I've got it. Um, belief that typically has a sense of some kind of propositional content behind it. I believe that God is omniscient. Would uh, if that is a belief, it would usually include some types of propositional data. Saying I believe in God without using these believe that propositional statements is utterly almost meaningless as we we can never really ascertain the nature of God if all we ever said was, I believe in God. For all I know, the God of that kind of statement could be a a purple dinosaur-shaped rock on Neptune. So the the proposition of believe that statements are preconditions for our believe-in statements to mean something, to have substance behind them. At least this is what I think Nash's means here. I'm I'm not 100% certain. Um, I've I had a note from the first time I read that, um, read the book, wondering what that meant. So, but I believe that's what he's talking about. That if if we only have believe in, without these preconditions of believe that you know, without some kind of propositional substance where these two are working together, our belief in is really weak and meaningless. So that's all I've got for this week. Uh, we will continue next week where Nash, what does he do? He's defending propositional uh, revelation. We'll have to be on our toes for that one because he uses a lot more philosophy. And so uh, we will see what he's going to do. It's a bit of a longer chapter too. So uh, thank you so much for listening. If you're still there, I'm, I hope you have a great week. You know, read a good book. Uh, May the Spirit illuminate you, enlighten you. God bless you, and I will see you next week.